Well, let's get in. The first thing we're going to be studying this year is the history of philosophy. We're studying the classics, the ancient Greeks especially. Men like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, etc. And so we're going to need to know quite a bit about what philosophy is. How do we define that? What is the Christian's relationship to philosophy? And a little bit about the history of philosophy. So that's what we're talking about today. A basic history of philosophy. So question number one, and maybe you can help me. What is philosophy? Hmm. There's several ways to answer this question, but what is philosophy? By the way, this sounds like an excellent test question. What is philosophy? Anyone? You know when you see it, right? You know when someone is philosophizing. Hmm, interesting. Not bad, not bad. I think this is a, a, the, the, probably the easiest way to define it for us. It is the study of the basic questions of life. Why? Why not? How can we know that? Are we certain? What is God or who is God? Why do we exist? What is truth? You don't have to write all of these particular things down. These are just the basic questions of life. A lot of times people think of these as the big questions of life. But honestly, they're just the basic questions of life. They're the fundamentals. They're the foundations of life. Isn't it nice to know why? Sure, we know how to change out a toilet. But you really want to know why. And are you fulfilling God's purpose for your life when doing so? I mean, it's quite a bit of a hassle. You would like to be a plumber who has his philosophy down, right? So, real quick, review. Marie, what is philosophy? Uh, The study of basic questions of life. Yes, and Nicholas, give me a couple of examples of the basic questions of life. Uh, Why? Um. What is your purpose in life? Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with the purpose of life is a large sea mammal lives off the coast of Louisiana right? how can we know what or who is God why do we exist and what is truth now let's think about this for a second how could we go about the study of philosophy what sources could we look to okay now Lucas brings up a great point to go about the 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 pursuit of philosophy asking the basic questions of life we could look at the Bible But that's called theology. That's right, that's called theology, which is your second major term. And we have to be able to distinguish between philosophy and theology. Theology is answering the basic questions of life by looking at the Bible. Or if it's false theology, looking at the Book of Mormon. Or if it's Islamic theology, it's looking at the Quran. Makes sense. But Christian theology attempts to answer the basic questions of life by looking at the Bible. But, but philosophy, remember, Socrates is doing philosophy. 
you might think of him as the father of philosophy or the first great philosopher. Plato is doing philosophy. Aristotle is doing philosophy. But they don't, they're not looking in the Bible as far as we know. What are they looking at? They're looking at facts, okay. What are they looking at the facts with? Uh, evidence, like stuff you can actually see. They're looking at it with their eyeballs. That's good. That's Aristotelian philosophy. You don't have to, we'll get there. They're looking at with their senses, what they can see, what they can touch, what they can taste, what they can smell. Experiments, looking at empirical evidence. That's Aristotelian philosophy. Now, do you trust what your eyes see? You do? You trust what you believe. Well, that's literally saying the same thing twice. <laughs> you tr- you believe in your be- in your belief. Interesting. You must. That's something else. But do you believe that what you see with your eyes, you can truly see, and that you're certain it's there? So you have faith in your eyes. How much faith do you have in your eyes? Can your eyes ever be deceived? They can be. So you're not certain that what you see, you can trust in. You're not certain, are you? Where can you be certain? The Bible. But now you see this went from philosophy to theology. Now, philosophy is, when you never go to the Bible, (laughs) philosophy, what we were doing there, was a little bit of philosophizing, asking, can we trust what our eyes see. A lot of people trust what they see with their eyes, don't they? Don't they? A lot of people do. It's Aristotelian philosophy. We'll get to that. We'll understand that a little bit more and more. But the reason why a Christian can believe what he sees with his eyes is because we believe in a creator God who revealed things to us in the Bible and in creation and gave us eyeballs to be able to rationally see. He gave us reason to be able to rationally and and interpret what we see with our eyes from the creation. And so we can know with certainty that what we see with our eyes is in front of us because of what the Bible says to us. You see, but that's theology. That's not philosophy because I'm looking to the Bible. But what if you don't have the Bible and you don't have the Christian God? What do you look to? What is your faith in? Lucas said he believes what he sees with his eyes. His faith is in his eyes. But now I know that he's a Christian, so I pressed him on that to see how much faith he had in his eyes. And he admitted not 100%. But if you believe with 100% in your eyes and what you see and what you can deduct and what you can perceive from experimentation, then you are a philosopher, a humanist philosopher. A lot of people are that way. A lot of people think that way. Now, but how else could we possibly perceive the truth, or answer the basic questions of life. Not only with what we see with our eyes, but what? What we hear, what we read, but what else? What we think. Yeah, now we're getting into Platonic philosophy. That's Plato. Plato is more about reason, logic, asking big questions and answering them with our minds. You could think of it that way, and I think that's a simple way to think of it. Plato was about discovering truth and answering the basic questions of life with the mind. Aristotle, more with the eyes. 
But who here believes that what makes sense to them is true? Anyone? You generally believe what makes sense to you is true. Have you ever heard a preacher or a teacher or a talk show host say something and you thought, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't believe it. That's very platonic of you. That's Plato's philosophy. That's right. That's Plato's philosophy. What if I were to tell you that God chooses whom he will save? That's good old-fashioned Calvinism right there. But you know what else Calvinism teaches? That man is responsible to choose God. Hmm, I see some, I see some of your eyes squinting. How can that be? Say it. That doesn't make no sense to me. You see, and that's where you have to ask the question. Am I, do I believe in platonic philosophy? Or do I believe in what is revealed in Scripture? And that's the difference between a philosopher and a theologian. People who are philosophers hate the things that theologians conclude. (laughs) But that is the difference between philosophy and theology. In theology, we look to what is revealed in Scripture, not to what makes sense to us. What book of the Bible does God embarrass someone thoroughly for the rest of human history, writing it down on paper, because they were trusting in what they could see and what they could think in their own mind? Job, that's right. What did God say? He said, were you there when I created the world? How are you? Who are you to question me? When, um, in, when the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans answers the, the difficult question of how can God be sovereign over our salvation and yet man be responsible, you know what his response is? He says, who are you, O oh man, to question God? Should the pot say to the potter, why have you made me thus? He doesn't even answer the question. He just says, who are you? Shut your mouth. Trust what God's word says because you're not Plato or Aristotle. They're both in hell. Trust what the Bible says, not philosophy. What is later called in scripture, vain philosophy. So just a quick review one more time, Marie. What is philosophy? Uh, Yeah, answering the basic questions of life, not with the Bible, but with what? With your senses or with your reason. That's right. A man-centered quest for truth. That's philosophy. If we could picture philosophy, it would be a man ascending a tower into the heavens so that he might be like God. Is that familiar sound? That question, that story sound familiar? Yeah, Tower of Babel. Philosophy is a man climbing up a ladder. Theology is God coming down the ladder. That's theology. So theology answers the basic questions of life, but with scripture. If it's false theology, they use other sacred texts. Like Islam or Judaism. Makes sense? All right, well, with that stated, let us get into the origins of humanistic philosophy. The origins. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, the first philosophers of any note that we have in history are from the ancient Greeks, beginning with Socrates. So the first great known philosopher was Socrates, 470 B.C. You want to generally know when these people lived, 470 B.C., 
Now, were there philosophers before Socrates? Of course, the devil is a philosopher. But the people who came before Socrates, they're like infants. They're like children speaking gobbledygook, goo goo gaga, when you compare them to Socrates. So oftentimes in the study of philosophy, you skip over a few um, you know, of the earlier philosophers and you go straight to Socrates. Also, another thing is that we don't have a lot of records of some of the Egyptian philosophers and Mesopotamian philosophers that no doubt existed before Socrates. We just don't have a lot of uh, a record of them. But we know men like Plato, who's a great philosopher, traveled to Egypt to do much of his studies in the, in the uh, libraries there. And so we know there were philosophers before the Greeks. It's just that we don't have their books. Make sense? But with Aristotle we, and Socrates and Plato, or Plato and, and Aristotle, I should say, we have their books. So, but the first philosopher of note is Socrates, 470 B.C., and he wrote no books. The reason we know anything about Socrates is because Plato, his student, wrote his dialogues. Plato was his iPhone pushed to record. That's right. Now, what Socrates is known for is the, is the dialectical method of philosophy. That's a term for you. Dialectical. Socrates dialectical method. D-I-A-T-E-C I'm sorry, D-I-A-L-E-C T-I-C-A-L Dialectical. (laughs) And this is a method of basically answering the basic questions of life by asking questions. He did not give a lot of answers, but he did ask a lot of questions. We also call this deconstructionism. He deconstructed Athenian religion and Athenian thought. He was from Athens, which you're going to be reading and learning all about this year. And he deconstructed Athenian religion and Athenian philosophy and Athenian thought like the, um, the gods, Zeus and Hermes and Apollo. He deconstructed their, their worldview and their philosophies as it pertained to these gods and these ancient um, myths. And he did so with questions. He was a troublemaker. He was a fox in the hen house. He was a questioner, and that got him condemned to death. He had to die by drinking hemlock, and his student Plato was there to record it and to witness it all. So but let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about the dialectical method, the strategy of deconstructing a worldview and deconstructing thought by answering question after question after question. Should we question everything? Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say, question everything? That was, that was real popular in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Those bumper stickers that said, question everything. And, and uh, graffiti artists would paint it on the sides of buildings. Question everything. If you Googled question everything, you could get images of it all over the world. It was a very, very famous like philosophical fad not too long ago. And it was an expression. But has anyone here ever heard that expression? Question everything. 
What does that mean? Now, we're going to do some theology here. We're going to go to Scripture and answer the basic questions of life. But what does the Bible have to say about the philosophy of life, which is simply question everything? Let's see if any of you can tell me before I even explain it. Um, Adeline is saying the Bible tells us not to question our authorities. Absolutely, no. never question your authorities. Okay, restate what you're saying. Uh, question the question the authorities which never are contrary to God's law. Never question God's authority yes. as revealed in the Bible. So question everything but not the Bible. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's good. That's good. Um, Should we question the question, question everything? (laughs) They say question everything. I question that. I'm not sure that it is a wise life to question everything. So when someone says question everything and then you say, should we question everything? Questioning everything? What our philosophy or what strategy we are we engaged in there? That's the dialectical method. You see how I asked a question to expose the absolute uh, circular reasoning and idiocy of the way of life called rebellion, a.k.a. question everything. But what other, what other ways could we deconstruct the philosophy of life, question everything? Who was the one doing the questioning? You. So what is, our, what is the basis of our worldview? We believe in Us. ourselves. And what do you call that? Humanism. It's humanism. The philosophy of question everything is humanism. One thing Socrates never questioned was himself. Right? At least not in a, a philosophical way. He believed in his own reason. He believed that he could ascertain the truth and was not in need of a divine revelation. So that's Socrates. It is an interesting strategy, though. It's a little, it's a little snarky. He's a little bit of a, a you know, a chill, cool dude. Like, you know, it kind of is persuasive to never state opinions and just to be like, well, but what about this? You know, what about that? I'm not so lame as to have a strong opinion about that. But uh, but have you ever thought about this? See, it's a it's a little bit of a cool guy tactic. See what I mean? You get to sort of uh, keep yourself a little distant from hard truths while also appearing to be the smart guy. The Oracle of Delphi was asked who was the wisest man in Athens. And the Oracle of Delphi said Socrates. And Socrates said, well, because I'm the one man that knows that I don't know anything. So for me, Socrates is a little, there's a little bit of a strategy there. And you can very oftentimes win people's hearts and win debates by not putting forth truth. Like preachers are not usually liked if they preach the truth. Prophets were sawed in half and beheaded and boiled alive because they preached the truth. But if you want to be accepted by the up-and-coming revolutionary, you know, cool generation, man, 
You know, there is no truth. We just ask questions, question everything. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Because it appeals to the humanistic, sinful nature that we all have. And so that's Socrates in a very, very uh, brief space and time. Let's go on to the next guy, Plato, Socrates' student. And that's 428 B.C., 428 B.C. If I have my times right, he's right around the time of the Minor Prophets, Malachi in particular. 428 B.C. Now, Plato we know a lot about because he wrote books. Many of the books that he wrote were Socrates' conversations with imaginary people called the Socratic Dialogues. You're going to be reading some of that. You're going to be reading Plato's political philosophy that he wrote down in a book entitled The Republic. That's right. And you will see that, well, you will, you will see when you read it where Hitler and Karl Marx and Benito and all of those fun, lovable guys got their, got their information from. Yeah, Plato 428. Um, now, his main philosophy, Plato's main philosophy, can be summarized with one word. You know, unity. Or oneness. For Plato, all is one. There's an ancient painting of Plato, and he is depicted as a man holding one finger pointed upward. And he's pointing upward to the world of forms where the real, the true, the good, the beautiful, the ideal exists in a nebulous, invisible dimension that he called the world of forms. And that dimension can only be ascertained or traveled to by man's reason. Anybody confused yet? I can remember learning this uh, in college and I was utterly confused. It's still a little confusing because it doesn't exist. So that's always confusing, right? When someone's describing something that doesn't actually exist, there's no, there's no ideal world of forms. There's heaven and there's earth. Um, but, it, but the philosophy goes a little something like this. They would, also, they would oftentimes use a chair, or people even still today use a chair to help you understand Plato's philosophy. And this is important, guys, as we're going to talk about everything in America right now goes back to these guys. Um, one person said that all the thoughts and all the philosophical musings and all the political pundits and all the smart people saying all the smart things are just footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. Like Every, every time you listen on the radio and someone gives a life philosophy, every movie you've ever seen, the movie Barbie goes back to Plato and Aristotle. <laughs> They're just restating what these guys already stated. Um, so Plato, if, if, if you can think about it this way, he, he, he says that, like for example, we have all these chairs in this room. And we can see them with our eyes. But with our eyes, we can't really discover true chairness. Right? <laughs> right? It's a little funny. Now we can see what he calls the, the accidents of the particular chair that Benjamin is sitting on. It is black, it is gray, 
it has a some sort of a modern checkered pattern. But those are just the accidental aspects of the chair. You could take it or leave it. Chair could be red, could be black. It could have a cushion, not have a cushion. Chair could have four legs. Could a chair have three legs? Technically, sure, sure. It could. It it could have. Uh, something that holds it up that may not even be thought of as a leg, I suppose. It could just have a base. Right? I, we could turn this, this uh, right here into a chair. But one thing that every chair has is chairness. <laughs> this, can you see chairness? Can't see it, can't touch it, can't taste it, can't smell it. It's not down here. But in the world of ideals in the world of forms there exists the one chair from which all the other chairs are merely copies okay now the thing is with plato's philosophy is you know what about all the poor chairs down here on earth well i'm a gray chair i'm a black chair i'm a red chair yeah, but we don't see any chairness in you. You're just a copy of the true chair. Well, do I have any purpose in life? Only as you can um, align yourself with true chairness. Well, but I, how can I even know what true chairness is? I, the philosopher, will tell you. Listen to me. right? That's, that's I mean, obviously I'm just being kind of funny, but... Plato's philosophy takes the meaning and purpose out of life. Even you, you are not true. You are not ideal. You are not, uh, there is a, a man in the world of forms, the true man. And you can think of Greek art as they drew the true man, the ideal man who has in him full and total manness. But all of you are just copies. And you know the thing about a copy well, it's not nearly as valuable, is it? Later, we're going to talk about um, Plotinus. He's one of Plato's uh, students or followers that comes several years later. And he says that the farther you get from the ideal, from the world of forms, the more you go from the one to the many. Copies, 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 copies. The dirtier and the yuckier and the less true and the less good and the less beautiful it is. So you can see this philosophy, although it's a little bit hard to understand, makes life down here on earth not so meaningful. It puts meaning, it puts purpose, it puts value where? Out there, over somewhere over the rainbow. Some glad morning over there on the other side of the Jordan in the world of forms. And, and we will talk later in class, if we have time, about how Christianity has swallowed Platonic philosophy and this concept of an ideal, true meaning and purpose in a spiritual realm, whereas the earthy things down here has less, less value and meaning. Sacred, secular, ever heard that expression? If you want to truly follow God, you need to find a calling and become what? You need to be a priest or a pastor. That's Platonic philosophy. That only those things in the quote-unquote spiritual world have any long, real, true meaning. But in Christianity, everything's spiritual. 
In Christianity, building that chair is incredibly valuable and a service to God and to man. We're not trying to discover through philosophical questions the true chairness in some other world. We're trying to serve people down here on earth. So that's Platonic uh, thought in a nutshell. And we're going to be reading his books, and so you're going to get to see it up close and personal. Let's move on. Aristotle, 384. Aristotle was Plato's student. And he too believed, he didn't reject everything that Plato taught. He believed in the the ideal, the true, the good, the beautiful. He believed in chairness. Yes, question? Aristotle, 384, that's when he was born. You don't have to know when they died, but you you do need to know when they were born. So you can roughly place them in the timeline of history. Aristotle. Now he believed in the true essence of something. True man or true chairness. The essence of what makes something something. The one. He believed in the one. But he believed that down here on earth, the many had within them a little bit of the one. Right? A little spark of that oneness. So while you are not necessarily the man, you have a little bit of essential manhood in you down here on earth. So chairness resided in that chair just a little and in that chair and in that chair. And with your eyes and your senses and experimentation, you could discover a little bit about chairness. So if you wanted to summarize Aristotle's philosophy in one word, you could call it diversity. What was Plato's word? Unity. Unity. And what is Aristotle's word? Diversity. Diversity. Also known as the one and the many. In the famous painting where Plato is pointing upward to the sky with one finger, Aristotle is pointing down to earth with two fingers. The one and the many. Unity, diversity. And if you're confused at all of this right now, don't feel bad. Because most of it is nonsense anyway. Um, and, we, and, we will, uh, and we will come to understand it a little bit better. But real quick, Christianity does not believe in the one as ultimate we don't believe in the many as the ultimate. We believe in the tri-unity, the trinity, the one and the many. Isn't that interesting? Plato's the one. Nothing has purpose and meaning except that one. And you want to escape to that oneness. You want to get in touch with that force, right? You want to become one with that nirvana. All this is platonic. And uh, But we say, no, it's not one, it's not the many, it's Trinity, three and one, in the Godhead. All members of the Godhead joined in perfect unity by a covenant of love. Very interesting, very interesting. Christianity has the answer to all of these philosophers' questions if they would turn to the Bible and do theology and let philosophy sit down at their feet. Alright, all right, let's move on to the next philosopher. Plotinus, P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S, Plotinus, 
P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S. Plotinus. And Plotinus is what we're going to call a Neoplatonist. What does the word Neo mean? New. New. Yeah, he's a new school, next gen Platonist. Plato. 205. So you can see he's a he's quite a bit of a ways from Plato. But he's following Plato's philosophy. And the reason why Plotinus is going to be very important for us this year and is always important is because he's writing during the time period that Christians are emerging and growing in the empire. So Plotinus is 205 AD. That's right, 205 AD. So he's many years after Plato. Many, many years after Plato. He's farther away from Plato than the United States has even been a, a country. But he's writing in 205, and that's when Christianity is spreading all over the empire. So it's very interesting to study this Neoplatonist philosopher and interact with his philosophy in comparison to Paul and to Luke and to, the, and to Moses, etc., and he basically taught that there was a world of forms and the, the farther you got away from the one true chairness, the lesser and lesser and lesser you became. Less purpose, less meaning. And does anyone know the name of the heresy that in, infiltrated the Christian church that basically taught this? It, in its day, it was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And so it's going to be very interesting to study this. The material world is dirty and bad. The spiritual and the ethereal, that's what counts. That's what matters. So don't be a plumber. Be a pastor if you want to truly live for Jesus. That is, of course, a demonic teaching. It's Plato. It's not Jesus. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a second. All right, and then comes Christianity. So that's our last um, thing we want to talk about. Philosophy, with the rise of Christianity. So Plotinus is in 205 AD. But remember, Christianity becomes the majority religion in the Roman Empire um, in the late 300s, early 400s. So now the whole of Western civilization, where we all come from, is moving away from philosophy and they're moving into theology. Can anyone name some of the famous theologians that arise during the Middle Ages? Calvin, a little later. Martin Luther, that's later on in the Middle Ages, in the Reformation. But what about in the 300s? A very famous philosopher from Hippo. He was a bishop. Augustine, Augustine, that's right. Men like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and um, Occam. You ever heard of Occam? Occam's razor, right? We have quite a bit of, we have theologians now dominating the cultural scene in the West. And they're not looking uh, purely to man for the answers. They're looking to the Bible. But what's very interesting about these theologians is that they're using some of the tools that the philosophers developed. They're using some of the tools of the philosophers. For example, who developed the three laws of thought? Who thought of them and wrote them down? 
You learned that in logic in first year. Aristotle did. That's right. And Aristotle, writing down the three laws of thought and formulating all of those various fallacies, right? And, and developing that entire um, you know, science of logic, the theologians began to use those philosophical tools um, to better understand the Bible. I think that's interesting. Now, some of the theologians, they added Plato to the Bible, or they added Aristotle to the Bible, and that was a big problem. But there was a lot of benefits in the fact that they could use some of the tools, like rhetoric and logic, to be able to properly study the Bible and grammar, which is what we're doing here in this school. Make sense? Now, Augustine, when you read it, you'll, you'll learn that he was a Platonist. He followed Plato um, for a large portion of, portion of his life and mixed it in a little bit with Christianity, but he repented of that and changed later in life. So you see for the next hundreds of years, with the rise of Christianity in Europe and North Africa and the Western world, you see philosophy and theology doing battle with one another. Man versus God. Philosophy versus theology. Some people um, add too much philosophy. Some people use the philosophical tools to do theology. Not everyone gets it all right. Um, But then it takes quite a bit of time before philosophy rears its head again in the Renaissance. You've heard of the Renaissance, 13 and 1400s. That's why in the Renaissance, for example, in Italy, what sort of architecture is becoming famous again? Greek Greek architecture, that's right. What sort of art is becoming famous again? Greek art. That's right. And the first big-named philosopher that sort of ends the Middle Ages is Descartes. D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S. Descartes. D-E-S-C-A-R-T-E-S. He's the first big name in the rebirth of Greek philosophy in 1596. 1596. So if you were to go to a public university... What parts of history would they celebrate? The Greco-Roman period, the classical period, we call it, and then the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period. What part of history would they call the Dark Ages? The Middle Ages where the theologians ruled. So theology was the king and philosophy was the queen throughout the Middle Ages. But then... After the Middle Ages, with the rise of the Enlightenment, the philosophy, the queen, took over. (coughs) And now when you go to university or to a public government school of any kind, or if you read books from the world or watch the television, you're not going to be getting theology. What are you going to be getting? Philosophy. And it's going to be Platonic, Aristotelian, Etc. Now, when we get into the modern age, you're going to learn some derivations on that. Um, you remember a little, learning a little bit of Nazism, Marxism. You know, they, they take some spin-offs of Plato and Aristotle and come up with some new stuff. But, um, but the, the basic essence of it is the same. Man determines what is true rather than God. Makes sense? So that's basically a history of philosophy in a nutshell.